Fred Jeffs, The Sweet Shop Murder Episode 3 A Robbery Gone Wrong I'm Graham Rose, and this podcast follows my attempts to unravel a family mystery. The mystery of the unsolved 62-year-old murder of my great-uncle, Fred Jeffs. This is a story with all the ingredients of a classic film noir, but it's as much about those on the sidelines, bystanders caught up in the dramatic aftermath of a brutal murder. 62 years after the event, anyone with a living memory of Fred Jeffs will now be in their 70s, 80s or older. Time's running out to find someone who can shed light on the mystery of Fred Jeffs and the sweet shop murder. The story so far. Fred Jeffs is dead. His body discovered in a shallow grave in a remote beauty spot. Maundy Thursday had been a busy day for the sweet shop at 12 Stanley Road, but proprietor Fred Jeffs seemed agitated. A mystery woman had entered the shop, and Fred was seen bringing her chocolates and mouthing the words, I'll see you later. But no one knows her identity. Was she the same woman seen emerging from the shop and disappearing in Fred's van later that night? The following morning, Good Friday, two young boys stumble across the murder weapon and are then chased away by a man looking like a gangster. When the police try to recover the object, a lorry starting handle, they can find no trace of it. It's gone. Did the Wasson gangster dispose of the weapon to cover his tracks? Had the boys looked a murderer in the eye? And was this the same person seen in the driver's seat of Fred's van the previous night? Many questions. And just one thing absolute. Fred Jeffs is dead. And as the news broke that Easter weekend, residents of Quinton and Worley had to face up to the reality of a murder in their midst. Episode 3, Part 1 The Impact I remember all the adults talking about it specifically and my father in particular. I can remember being in the van with my dad and driving past the shop and the police cars being outside and, and whatever. And of course murders were a rarity then, they weren't something you read about in your local paper every few days. And of course the death penalty was still there, so there was, you know, considerable amount of interest in it. My mother had got three sisters, and certainly with two of them, they spent many hours talking about it, surmising on it, and wondering when they were going to get somebody. I remember my mum telling me, um, I got home from work because I was um, living at home then, and um, and she said, you'll never guess, and then she told me, and uh, we were shocked. It was shocking, you know, we didn't think like that before. For some, though, the news was closer to home. I was in bed in the morning, and my mother came up and told me. I was told he'd been found murdered, but I didn't hear anything else ever about it. But that's all she said. That's all she knew. And if she knew anything else, she kept it to herself, you know. You weren't told things like that when you're children. 
Okay. They didn't tell me uh, my dad was a suspect for a while. They didn't tell me that. That's my dad speaking. And the suspect in question was Douglas Rose, Fred's half-brother and my granddad. When the police arrived at the door, he knew immediately that something dreadful had happened. They took him in for questioning and broke the news. They also wanted to know why Doug's fingerprints were all over Fred's van. But Doug had an alibi. And he explained that he'd taken Fred's van for a test drive in the days leading up to the murder, intending to buy a similar one for his own business. Nearly everyone I speak to talks of an innocent age and the fact that murders, though commonplace now, were such a rare thing back then. The fact that it had happened at all was bad enough. In our area, Quinton, you know, well, it's, you know, this can't happen around there. We don't have things happen like that around there. The local newspapers of the time, however, paint a slightly different story. Armed robberies, violence, suicides, and fatal accidents feature on almost every page. The kids were told nothing. And perhaps that's understandable for a generation of parents still reconciling themselves to the wreckage heaped upon them by the Second World War. A child wasn't, wasn't told things like we do now. And if you asked questions, you, were, you didn't get an answer anyway. You know, it was always, everything was brushed under the carpet with my parents. You can keep stum. But you can't contain a child's imagination. This particular day, we decided we were going to be detectives. And I told her the story of my uncle, what I knew, you see, my uncle had been murdered, which was a really big thing, you know. And we were going to solve it. That was my Auntie Liz talking. And I suppose I'm merely following in her footsteps. But the story was having a similar effect on other children in the area, like Denise and Jackie. I think we cycled up to have a look at the shop where it was. Oh, right, right. There, Jeff's murder. One little lad in our road, his dad, got an Easter egg from the shop on the way home. So we were full of that because I think they asked for people who'd been in the shop. And so my friend's dad went, oh, your dad's been to see the... Oh. And it was all exciting. <laughs> it was all exciting. Oh. And we got—I mean, we used to play cops and robbers, so it was a yeah. kind of yeah. It's a murder, but it was, and we were scared. There is a murderer on the loose. It was how it felt. Cops and robbers, with a murderer on the loose, and the local kids on alert, patrolling the area on their bikes. So while we're in the mood for playing detective, let's consider the one obvious motive: the case for robbery. Episode 3, Part 2 Robbery well, Once I stopped rationing um, there was a, a bit of a euphoria everybody went raving mad and buying sweets left, right and centre a lot of the sweet shops couldn't get enough it's very, very busy shop very, you know, always something going on there I think you ever went in there when there wasn't already one or two people in there I never remember going in there without at least somebody else being in there, you either finishing serving them or just about to serve them. So it was always a busy shop. I wouldn't know whether he got money, I don't know. But he, there was a, a sweet shop and it was a, a steady sort of business. It was, 
I don't know if they made much money out of sweets, but... Um... But, um, according to my dad, Fred did seem to have money. Perhaps cashing in his army demob payments, Fred rewarded himself for the five years spent in a prisoner of war camp by buying himself a flash car. My dad remembers it being an Austin A90 Atlantic. The Atlantic was built nearby at Longbridge in an attempt to woo the American market and boost a flagging economy. It was a sports car sufficient to land the prize catch of a beautiful, aspirational young wife, Betty Cooper, whose family ran the shop at number eight. That was probably what attracted her. Nobody got a sports car then. Nobody could afford it. I think he got rid of it when he married. Nobody had got a sports car then. But it was not an entirely practical vehicle for running a sweet shop, so Fred switched to an altogether less glamorous and more utilitarian A30 van. We heard about it even in 1957. You know, otherwise he got his little van. Not that many vehicles around in them days. Post-war austerity was still the reality for most, but it seems that Fred had been doing rather well. On Easter Monday, Chief Superintendent Richards made a statement. I believe robbery was the motive for the murder. It has been discovered that 91 pounds, two days' takings, were stolen from a secret hiding place in Jeff's shop. Mother was convinced that it was, it was a robbery gone wrong. There was definitely money, wasn't there? There was definitely money yeah. taken. Because that was his routine. Mm. He did it every Friday. Every Friday night, when he'd close the shop, he'd go for a walk, and then when he got on the way back, he'd go via the bank and put the... You know, the old night safe mm. for you to put your takings in. You know, he'd, he'd do that. Yeah. That's what she said. But you shut the shop on Good Friday, Saturday, Sunday, mm. at Easter at that point, didn't you? So um, he wouldn't have been mm. open, so perhaps it wasn't. So for once, Fred needed to bank the shop takings on a Thursday, it being the end of that working week. In actual fact, this was not the first time he'd been robbed. As the police later revealed, just four months previously, on the 21st of December, there'd been a burglary at Jeff's shop. 140 pounds of Christmas takings were stolen, along with a wireless radio. The two busiest times of the sweet shop year were Christmas and Easter. Fearing a repeat, Fred had started to squirrel away wads of cash in hidey holes. He bought himself an air pistol for protection, which slept underneath his pillow at night and which he took with him when delivering cash to the night safe. But clearly this air pistol had been no use on Maundy Thursday, the night of the murder. Had he been distracted by something or taken by surprise? Perhaps this is where the mystery woman fits in. The woman who, the badden, he probably arranged to meet her as well. She knew he'd have the money, and that, that may very well have been when all the problem started. Fred wasn't going to part with the money, and uh, then the accomplices stepped in. By Easter Monday, an air pistol of the same description, but without fingerprints, was recovered from a dustbin on the Hampstead Road in Hansworth. It was along the route between Wasson, where the body was found, and Witten, where the van had been abandoned on Good Friday morning. Fred's wallet, when found inside the van, was empty. 
And when his body was discovered, his pockets were turned inside out to at least give the impression that he'd been robbed. Police tracked down one of the Maundy Thursday customers, a Mr. Coles Mogford, a regular in the shop from Edgbaston, who had bought a large and fancy Easter egg from Jeff's. The police later photographed him holding the egg, a cigarette between his fingers. News of the murder had clearly killed his appetite, but he was able to confirm to CID men that he'd spent a brand new £5 note worth a considerable sum in 1957 in the shop, and that he'd watched as Fred carefully put it into the till. The serial number was then published in the national press in the hope of tracing the criminal, but to no avail. Chief Superintendent Richards hadn't discounted finding the missing cash, though. The money could still be in the shop, although it has been searched very thoroughly, even to the extent of taking up the floorboards. Jeffs was a very careful and secretive man and had a number of hiding places. Andy Bowen is the current proprietor of Jeff's old sweet shop at 12 Stanley Road. His family moved in in 1989, a good 30 years after the murder. Carol, Andy's mum, recalls that there was still evidence of the police search even then. We were either having some electrical work done or gas work done and we had to have some floorboards taken up and they, they weren't nailed down, they were all loose. And carpets had been put over after, but they were loose, um, but they had been taken up. Well, what was that like thing that. he found when he was decorating? That thing that when he was decorating between the doors? Well, when we took the paper off, there was a hole. You know, it hadn't been camouflaged over or filled in. It was a hole. That was a bit of a talking point. I think Fred didn't want the taxman to know everything he did. <laughs> Maybe. So he didn't bank all his money mm -hmm. and he thought, where can I keep it safe? It seems clear as day that robbery was the motive. £91 was a tidy sum in 1957, the equivalent of about £2,000 today. But was it worth killing for? If it was a bungled robbery, wouldn't the police have found some signs of resistance from Fred? Had he been taken by surprise whilst walking his dog, Perro? Or was the mystery woman an accomplice, a lure, drawing him unwittingly towards danger. At this point, the clear-cut case for robbery seems to falter, and we have to consider other possibilities. Orders, I, I seem to remember my father saying that he was in debt or he owed money. I don't know whether you've heard that. And that the assailants came to confront him about this debt or something and uh, set about him. I've heard any number of theories. Was he being blackmailed? Or was he victim of a protection racket? What seems clear to me is that robbery alone is an insufficient explanation for what happened to Fred. Certainly there was money missing, but this was a very carefully planned and executed crime. We think there were two witnesses aside from the murderer himself. The first, Perro, Fred's black poodle, who cannot talk. And at this point in the story, he's still missing. The second is the mystery woman from the shop, almost certainly present at the time of the murder. I don't think we can get any closer to the truth without identifying this person. Join us next time for episode four, The Mystery Woman.
Fred Jeff's The Sweet Shop Murder is created by me, Graham Rose, with original music and sound design by Fox and Rocher, and direction from Steve Johnston. This podcast series is made possible with the support of Black Country Touring, and the original theatre production was supported by the Birmingham Rep and the Arts Council of England. If you'd like to rate, review, or tell us who done it, please get in touch. Hashtag Fred Jeffs. <laughs>